0: Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with twenty twenty vision. Let's go. Welcome to the Invisible Podcast. My guest today is Laszlo Mari, and he is the founder at Dakai and their company in the crypto and AI space. So welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Thank you. Uh, It's
0: it's all good. Yeah. So, Laszlo, uh, crypto, AI, what are you guys doing?
1: We build innovative products for some of the largest companies out there. Um, Usually, companies and startups come to us when they receive funding or about to receive funding or when... Uh, a large company has a new initiative where they don't they might not have the talent in-house and needs someone to just crunch it out basically um we take in in the enterprise world fairly short sprints, so six months or so um when we define products we help um we help drive the direction of the product and we develop these products uh and put it like push it to the market on the technical side we help with like product ux ui too um and our core focus is of course uh the tech itself, making sure that uh, that it's up to date, and we are working with the latest technologies, including AI right now. Uh, it was blockchain for a, for a couple of years. Uh, we try to stay ahead of the curve. So, for example, on on AI, we have some very strong people uh, that are working with us for a while now. Um, on on blockchain, it's in our DNA. We have been working. We have been around for five and a half years now. Um, uh, we we celebrated our fifth uh, birthday last year December. So it's um we're growing nicely and um and so far everything is, is fine. We worked with companies to name to name some more specific things. Um, we are we're working companies like Coinbase, um, like Solana, Lufthansa, Google, Spotify. So it's a very wide range, even in size, even in industry. Uh, we're very industry agnostic we kind of uh try to find solutions to problems and we usually onboard the industry itself uh so our team learns uh the specific things that is required for that industry and then we just push uh, we build create products and that's the that's the most important focus of the company
0: that's really interesting um and i would love to hear we don't have to go to specifics, we don't have to go into anything controversial, but I would love to hear how you guys handled the 2022 crash um, and, and like what your take on the crypto environment is right now and like where we headed, what what's what, what happened, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also very interested in crypto, so I'd love to talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because 2022, we even before the crash, we started a widespread push in the Middle East. And that's like right now, it's a very big trend, but we seem to be a year ahead of the curve. So we could actually, as one of the few US companies who were uh, pushing that region early, uh, we could solidify our presence there. And most of our projects are from that region at this point. Um, It it balances out the US nicely. Um, I think the US is seeing a really big crash right now, especially with recent news. Uh, I mean, these days uh, Coinbase and Binance, Uh, the SEC of course we've worked with both companies Uh, we know a lot of people from both companies so it's kind of personal for us both of Mm -hmm. (laughs) the big exchanges getting sued Um, it's of course uh, painful to say but it's a longer process like it doesn't have an immediate it has some market fluctuation effect but this is more important on the longer term and I think um, in terms of the SEC they might change their viewpoint in the next years uh, as the leadership changes um, it, it's like a time limited thing. So if the if these lawsuits can you know be uh, pushed out uh, long enough, mm-hmm. there might be a very pro crypto government that comes in especially with the, with the new government that might be elected next year. Um, so that might change the course altogether. So this is not something that's very very concerning in in the industry it's more like I, I don't even know. I think it's more like investor protections of course the SEC in turbulent times, a lot of exchanges go uh, insolvent. A lot of uh, a lot of companies start, you know, uh, stealing money, doing shady things because the market is uh, growing tighter and tighter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, like to- in the 2017 crash or 2018 crash uh, after ICOs, all the ICOs were like the CEOs were grabbing their money and everything. The SEC, yes. I think, just wants to create an environment where this cannot happen at all. Uh, even with the market kind of disappearing or, or, or getting smaller and smaller, so I, I look at it more as a precautionary step like it's a signal of yes, even if you're like whatever your size you are will come after you, uh, especially if you do shady stuff. Uh, but I wouldn't take it as you know, like crypto is dead, uh, tomorrow that sort of notion.
0: But, but you're saying, uh, because you know, Coinbase got sued by the SEC yesterday or a few days ago, and and um. Uh, and Binance, I believe, got got sued as well. I'm not sure on the timeline there. I actually checked GPT to go give me an analysis of what happened on on Coinbase. Uh, and um, but you're saying that basically, like SEC wants to make sure that they are getting the bad actors out of there as these crashes come. That they're basically getting out, getting yeah. those bad actors out. But then Coinbase isn't a bad actor, though they're 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 like a um, they seem like a solid company who 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 you know IPOed went through that whole process. But I think this this legislation is going to be very interesting because it could define how how crypto is seen in the U.S. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, definitely not a bad actor. In fact, one of the most uh, trusted actors. I just think that if even the trusted uh, actors yeah. get this kind of treatment, then bad actors will refrain from Got it. doing shady stuff and this didn't happen in 2018 and it caused so much money leaving the market Uh, this didn't happen you know before the ftx crash it it caused so much money leaving the market Um, and i think it doesn't help that for s for sec and and in their position it's very difficult to actually just who is a good and who is a bad actor because even if the big Uh. four accounting firms try to audit coinbase or binance or whoever they at at their best intention of both companies because crypto is involved uh they will get like a 50% auditing done so the sec just cannot see the full picture because um there's is, there is no full picture with crypto fluctuating here and there. like one <laughs> one day your balance is that the other day it's that customers get like for example with binance customers were like leaving the leaving binance at uh large numbers a couple of months ago, then they realized that it's like actually not as bad and it didn't go in solid, So they came back and now Binance is back too. So and that in okay. terms of accounting, that's that's a hell um, and it's very difficult to check.
0: And you're saying that the IRS does, uh, and, this, and that might have been a guesstimate, but you're saying that the IRS is doing 50% audits on crypto companies. And are, do you think that's because of the crypto nature of, of the uh, illegal tie-in? Or do you think it's because of what you just mentioned of the just crazy amount of Uh, i'll give you a little black story like my taxes are totally crazy right now because i started to i was um i was not sure how taxation worked and i got accountants and i was like oh the accountant's going to know how the crypto works uh and i specifically got an accountant that was crypto focused because because i thought that that would might be an issue and it turns out the crypto software was tracking transactions that i had already done a a long time ago that i had just sold and uh and then uh and they've been building that into my taxes, so charging me for a Bitcoin bought at fifteen fifty dollars uh, U.S. dollars, uh, uh, and it's like, whoa, okay, what do I do now? Um, and so, what do you think about this this distinction of 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 like the IRS, like they're, they're what are they doing with with uh, with crypto?
1: Yeah, I mean, they are trying to push uh, a square into a round hole. It's not gonna that's <laughs> not gonna work. Um, And the accounting firms are using software where, you know, these software update life cycles are, they take years. And since crypto has been relevant, I mean, the past year has been when it really has seen that adoption by larger companies where the big four has to be focused like Deloitte's and and PwC's. So their software has to be updated. Their whole accounting way of doing accounting has to be updated. And those processes take years so they are just getting there to and there are very strong teams i, I know some of the accounting from teams that are working on this but it's they're just getting to a position where they can assess if a company is is a good crypto company or a bad crypto company or like how how would this look like how do they protect uh, customers there is no definitive answer and then all the dexes all the new like ways uh, of how smart contracts are working building that into an accounting software with the ever-changing word is just infinite backlog so like it's it's a very difficult problem and the SEC doesn't like best guesses like yeah this firm is probably a trusted one because everyone trusts them uh, especially after FTX I mean a lot of people trusted FTX um you don't you cannot make these assumptions um so even if Coinbase is the most legitimate actor the SEC wants to see proof they yeah. will sue until they see that proof oh, okay and it's very simple and then once coinbase provides that proof uh once these accounting practices catch up um once they've been the lawsuit probably um new regulations will be put into place uh probably the whole space will evolve. but why that's going on it's probably a, a couple of years uh while it's happening um again the u.s election might change this uh, a lot next year but uh, on a normal course, it's, it's a couple of years. Actually, a lot of the companies are looking at Dubai, at other places, Caribbean, oh. where they just go and set up shop, and, um, and they can cover a lot of the world. And in crypto, the U.S. is not, they're a major player, but not a huge, huge player. So it's very global, and companies that don't necessarily need the U.S., They can set up in dubai they can set up in other places and it's very interesting that when i go to the middle east i actually sit down with uh like u.s companies and (laughs) people from the us uh in in dubai and abu dhabi it's just a weird uh i i got used to it by now but uh at first i was like hey how how does this work here (laughs) talking to the same people that i've been
0: to talking to in new york it's so interesting um i've been so focused on it for so long and so it's just like thinking that where we're headed in terms of the us that you know like there's a lot of debate on whether we're an empire that's still growing not many people left in that camp uh an empire that is stasis or an empire that's falling uh and crypto yeah. specifically uh, is a very interesting thing because crypt- crypto promises decentralization some crypto promises decentralization Potentially a new future that is very, very different from the past of of essentially large nation states that are that are very centralized. Um, And so I've been thinking for a long time that the U.S. might not actually be the best place where the innovation actually happens, unfortunately, because I I'm an American. I love America, love my country. uh, But uh, just like the regulatory environment, (laughs) Particularly given all the crazy stuff that's happened over the past few years is like it just doesn't seem like it's the the smart environment. But what you're saying is actually is is actually interesting that the that the SEC might actually be going about this in a smart way in terms of like saying we are going to take regulation at a good way in terms of like letting Coinbase know sending a big signal to the big player that like you guys have to be on your stuff uh, so that everybody else in the, uh, knows that their stuff and that makes sense given what happens with FTX. So it's a very interesting take. Um, And my question, I would love to hear from you what your thoughts on El Salvador becoming a sort of like a crypto haven, but they're really focused on Bitcoin. um, And or do you think Dubai is going to be the place? Do you think Singapore is going to be the place? Do you think Switzerland is going to be the place where or is it going to be a decentralized virtual place that has a lot of different jurisdictions that kind of create the support for this? What do you think about that?
1: Um, Too early to tell right now i think uh way smarter people than me at very large companies uh are thinking that you kind of have to cover the caribbean uh one place or another you have to kind of and, and that covers all of latin america uh some of the us um you have to cover either dubai hong kong or Singapore. there's that that three um locations that kind of compete for this and potentially europe but ireland and and some Mm -hmm. other countries that are pretty heavily emerging um as the as and switzerland like there are many interesting uh places in europe where you can set up um but yeah there is there are these three locations as a global crypto company that you have to cover and as a startup either of them is fine uh really the us is what you need to avoid right now while it's so turbulent Um, and later, I mean, of course, once things clear up, uh, I would still suggest, you know, founding companies in the U.S. Um, I think the talent pool is amazing uh, that you cannot necessarily find in the other places. Uh, The management structure, one thing coming from Europe, uh, coming from a small country in Europe that was a communist state for a very long time, um, what you see, at least a very distinctive thing that I see is that, in Europe, uh, kind of the management layer that that wanted to build up, or like the political layer, that the people that can influence large crowds and uh, or even within a company and kind of push a, a vision forward, those were the people that were killed first. Uh, and historically, if this goes on for a couple hundred years, uh, those, I mean, people just like it 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 unevolves uh, from from the mentality of the of the whole country um, and. This is something that has been thriving in the U.S. for hundreds of years. And that's very, very important. Uh, it's almost in everyone's DNA to be a manager, to to push a vision forward. It's very much not in the DNA in these other uh, locations. Um, like even India, China, Europe, uh, we're just catching up uh, to being able to manage crowds. And, and the U.S. has that. I think that's one of the biggest, like, and that's something that no one really can take from the U.S. So I think when you build a company, the developers or other um, people, they they can come from different locations, and that's perfect. But the actual managers, uh, I just see a huge oh, difference between managers in the U.S. and everywhere else.
0: That is a very interesting point. Uh, and, it, and it goes so interestingly into some kind of deeper philosophical questions um because you know we we talk about development we talk about modernity united states and europe but united states really really nailed the um kind of modernity side of work uh management you know people like henry ford really really figured out some excellent ways to to manage and then japan you know in the toyota japan took what the united states was doing and then figured out how to do it better uh in terms of efficiency and that has all these things to do with with culture in, in terms of Japan and everything like that. A really interesting point that you're saying that in, in Eastern Europe, because of the legacy of communism, uh, that that management I'm sure there were there was management in in Eastern Europe, but it just wasn't professional management. It wasn't capitalist management. Um, can you I'd love just like as an as a curiosity to go into that a little bit more. What is what did management look like in that era and how does it play out right now in Hungary and other countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really wasn't like if you try to be an entrepreneur, uh, you will, you would get prison and stuff, like if, because that went directly against the communist like uh. thinking. So people like my dad, my dad tried to be an entrepreneur across a lot of different verticals, like he has been not prison, fortunately, but he has been going through a lot of stuff, uh, while the communism was still going on and he grew up in that. So, um, like even though I have, an entrepreneur DNA to an extent, yeah, uh, and and my family like that has been really dragged over the years, uh, and so I, I it's just very difficult to um, realign after <laughs> so many years of you know now now in a capitalist society uh, now we can kind of do what we do best um, and and try to do that, but even now I had to learn how to not micromanage, and it was actually a transition, and even other people in the, on the in the chi. We have to learn how to not micromanage and i feel like in the us the default is if you have to micromanage people they are fired like that's the and that's the principle that i think is healthy like people should be self-managing and understand the direction that the company is going into Um and all of these people and in asia in europe people are just used to micromanaging so this is a, a bottom-up problem as well uh that if you are if you're managing um europeans or asians or other societies where communism has been have been spreading uh people just people want to do exactly how they are told and they they want to do these chunks of work and this is why for example japan japan drove this to an extreme they, i'm not sure if they have communism i don't think they did no. but um like they just the society is very focused on precision and uh you know driving that one specific thing that a person is doing to perfection. Sometimes someone is doing their job 50 years in a row, uh, without, you know, switching to, to something else. Uh, and this is very common and it's just, it's very different than, you know, doing sprees of very innovative, very creative work where you figure something out. I'm not sure which one rewards like long-term because the kind of the communism that we have been getting has been very, um, very bad like very badly structured um i i'm I'm kind of i try to figure out because most of these things that have been around for a hundred years like they have married they have a base that they are building on it's not just fully bad but like the the way we got it was like really really bad and people were kidnapped on the street people were like put into these black cars to put yeah. away so like of course there, there are these images uh, that even the younger people get even though when i was born there was no communism anymore um it is just stuff that you are that you're seeing uh in, in movies or whatever uh, when you were a kid and you see that image in front of you as you as you think about different things so i don't know how that builds into society but my guess is that it's the management there is just not It's just, I think we are like two generations away from getting that really integrated, really nice uh, management layer. Hopefully no wars or anything comes across that. I mean, two generations is a long time. So, uh, And we see where the world is today. But that's how much I think the world needs to catch up to where the U.S. is right
0: now. It's so interesting because you were talking about the DNA of an entrepreneur. (laughs) And I I fundamentally agree that an entrepreneur is mostly born... um, but also developed through experience. But you, and you can't really, you can't really train somebody to be an entrepreneur because it's so divergent. Um, but there is a, a large percent of the population that does have that DNA gene. Um, and then you are talking about kind of, you know, the generations and stuff like that. But are you seeing among young people in either Hungary or maybe other the surrounding countries that um, are getting access to the internet and are figuring this type of stuff out and that are, able to like think creatively in this way, um in this interesting way. Are you seeing that? And what's the deal there?
1: Yeah, of course, more and more. And I think even when I was a kid, I started working when I was 14. I started programming before that. Um I and I I started working for even large companies. Um I when I had that, um I was trying to escape the kind of Hungarian mentality. There is a very strong push of like we see where the Countries headed uh, on its natural course, course, and like, what are the limitations that are being built into society, or like, not being built anymore, or partially being built right now? Even, um, I, I don't, I don't really follow politics or try to not follow politics as much. Um, I'm more looking at the long term trends. Uh, I think generally the the trend is upwards. Uh, whatever the current like political turmoil is, um, and that's good. Um, I think, but you know, like people have to escape this uh, kind of society still. Uh, And I was growing up on Slack. I was growing up on like Slack groups and I was talking to New York-based entrepreneurs and San Francisco-based entrepreneurs. And I could like live through that period when San Francisco was expanding like crazy uh, during the 2010s because I was online and I had this access to just see how entrepreneurs think. And um, this is something that's not, usual um at, at all uh but nowadays maybe the discord group and some others smart people find a way like people that want to escape can escape i actually moved away to germany because i was so um i was just so disappointed in how universities work here for example like yeah it's free but you're getting 30 year old education and you're essentially you have to learn stuff that the large enterprises need that will hire you uh that just want to maintain legacy systems and you don't learn the stuff that can move this society forward like why does it work that way, why do US universities teach you the most cutting edge stuff, in fact why do universities produce the cutting edge innovation so I saw that and I was like no I, I want to be in Germany, I want to move away from here but I moved back because a lot of talent is here, a lot of the like I could, there are so many great engineers here, uh, they just need that that kind of product vision uh that kind of push uh slight push uh, and they can they see they also see the difference in what they create like they're not maintaining this large erp system or crm system anymore they are they're doing cutting edge stuff and i think that's that's what we try to do we we try to build a really strong engineering base in hungary and we have business people in different locations um, we want to have a strong presence in the U.S. We want to have a strong presence in the Middle East and then potentially other places as well. And just bring those innovative projects to a place where we can deliver them best. I um, like have the product people. In fact, I sometimes lead projects. I I try to uh, push the product vision of the whole company forward. And then, yeah, projects get... Del- I mean, these companies work with us because project get, projects get delivered really well. Uh, but that's a long... Like that's a big collaboration and it's a very specific thing to how you build teams here versus other places.
0: That's super interesting because you have figured out a way to turn a normal, quote, engineer into a startup engineer. And that seems like a DNA. I'm sure a lot of other people in places like Ukraine and and Brazil and Argentina have done it. Um, but it, how how do you turn a normal engineer into a startup engineer, and what is there a lot of conflict in that process? Is there how do you kind of how do you deliver that message about like okay the things you're doing are great they're cutting edge they're really interesting but here's a whole new way to think so like what is that way new way to think and what, how did you do it?
1: Actually, it's not my job anymore. So we have a management structure that we built up around that, and that management structure is worth gold and and everything else like (laughs) it has been a long time and my co-ceo has been uh one of the most uh influential people in building it up uh he's he's responsible for a lot of the internal organizational things that are going on he's also focused on ai i'm more the outward facing guy and i want to be able to talk to a lot of the customers but when it comes to building up that i mean i I started the company I, i had to build that small core team um i i just I got drained in micromanagement, and so I, I knew I had to switch. Yeah. Uh, and we made these small switches. Like we started getting bricks out. I mean, it's like if you start micromanaging at scale, then it's a race to the bottom. And so I hit these walls, and I knew that there is a better way to do this. I was looking outward. I was reading books. I was I was reading like management books, sales books, coaching books. There was like creativity or, or something else. Or uh, I'm not even sure what the what the names of the books are anymore, but Trillion Dollar Coach, yeah, so that one is a very good example, Uh, the coach of uh, Google's founders and and some other very important people in Silicon Valley, Um, they kind of, I think it was one of the Google co-founders who wrote that book, Um, Eric Schmidt, potentially, I don't want to (laughs) really, like, misfire with that, but, but, yeah, like, that really opened my eye, Um, and I think there are so many examples where we could, we just had a network who could refer resources to us, who could help us because we built up this uh, US relationship, uh, like US network of people that we just know, um, and they could guide us. We had a very very good coach uh, actually who helped a lot with. We knew the direction in a sense, but he he told us like yeah, you, if you are micromanaging, you have to fire the people that you need to micromanage and who cannot evolve, and you know getting that push of, okay, so we figured this out and we had this sense, but we actually have to do this. We have to be pretty drastic about it, even though our our company, um, we really love the people and actually people adopted. So we don't have to fire people uh, around this issue. Uh, Actually, all the people uh, that are managers right now in the company, they adopted to this challenge uh, really nicely. And um, we just had to take a stance. Of okay, this is this is, and actually they are happier now than they were because they're also pushing that uh, okay like here's the direction this is where you this is direction uh, people have to work uh, towards and it's just very interesting to me how this evolves uh, as as an organization I'm I'm more on the sidelines now uh, watching that internal evolution and I'm more focusing on getting the customers that that's the fuel that that fuels that um, that's needed. Uh, for that process but yeah it's uh, it's interesting to see that transformation i think at scale we're very far away from that transformation and uh, i mean even i think dubai and the middle east in general are in a very good spot because they can they have the money to hire the americans who can manage, and they can learn from them so a lot of times you see organizations where there's a top arabic guy who uh, who is really good at what they do? Uh, but they hire Americans under them, uh, and the Americans are driving a lot of the a lot of the actual management of the company. um and that way you get best of both words uh, kind
0: it's of very interesting that you're saying that there's a brain drain from the United States to Dubai because usually yeah. it's been usually it's been the other way around, which is the brain drain from India to the United States, brain drain from Eastern Europe to the United States. And now what you're telling me is that there's a brain drain from the United States to Dubai. Is this specifically in crypto or are there other companies in Dubai that this is also happening with? Crypto is the most um, relevant, but other companies as well. Yeah. Interesting. So I would love to understand, because I've been so focused on it lately in terms of AI, what are the changes that you're seeing in terms of how AI is changing crypto? Um, One of the interesting facts, but I didn't fact check it, was that Is that um, when the Ethereum blockchain is, everything's out there and open, or all the blockchains are out there and open. So you can see everything, a lot of open source code. So so one article I was reading said that the the engineers' jobs that are most at risk are blockchain engineers because everything's out in the open and the AI can read it all and and do it. First of all, is that true? And second of all, do you have any interesting thoughts on how AI is changing crypto?
1: Yeah, I think AI is changing software development in general because as as far as I look at AI, there are so many apocalyptic um, thoughts around ChatGPT and all these. The way I look at it is it doesn't have a direction. It's a a translation layer between code and humans. So end of the day, it calls APIs. I mean, ChatGPT plugins and all of them, they call APIs, but you can talk to them. Mm -hmm. So there is no like, Application needed in between, uh, which has been the translation layer between the like database and the and the human. Um, there is now just the chat interface. It's a common user interface that anyone can use, um, but it's just it's a translation layer. Even in in terms of how it works, large language models are they they are not thinking on their own. They they just put together the most likely uh, sentence for your query uh based on a lot of different inputs and and training data. So um I think it won't radically change things yet. Um the the junior programmers will be able to be um I think it's very interesting because the juniors in pretty much every field will be switched out to AI. So analysts, programmers, a lot of different lawyers, like all of that. And I think we will from now we entered into a race where If we, by the time the seniors, the senior guys that are around now, that are like 30 years old or so, um, by the, or 35, by the time they go and retire, um, we have to have AI that switches them out. So that's roughly 25 years from now, uh, that we have to, that we have to deliver, uh, a thing that switches out the senior guys. If we fail to do that, there is going to be a very big uh, issue because there is not going to be juniors. Um, people like juniors will only the smartest, the the craziest, the best people will be able to work as juniors. Uh, companies will will need like one um or or two juniors instead of uh, an army of them, wow. and so they won't be able to train a lot. Um, and yeah, it's just and then on the other which I, I know it might be relevant for invisible as well, actually, is maybe this transformation will lead into into companies um, outsourcing parts of the job uh, to like these small groups of two, three people that are kind of entrepreneurial and, and like only delivering a very specific service, um, which is very close to what actually companies are doing to Asia. So like, it, it turns back into micromanagement on, on a level um because that's like those people can train on that and they can be they can outcompete ai on that specific thing um that companies have to outsource so it's it's a very interesting transformation uh i think in terms of blockchain short term the effect is that both ai and i think this is the most interesting effect that both ai and uh and blockchain essentially compete for the same GPU resources and computing resources so it's oh, like they <laughs> Yeah. And actually i worked at a mining company where we switched between blockchain and AI in 2017 before founding the CHI. Um Like we had to, we had to make that switch. Um, so short term, there's nothing of GPUs for both. Um, if one of them goes like takes Whoa. off like crazy. Um, yeah. Like there is this, there is this problem of what's happening. This is like the one year scale, uh, probably, or like one to two year scale. Uh, if everyone moves into 3a then there's not going to be much like the value of crypto will <laughs> just naturally devalue a bit if decentralization is the is the main value uh, That's of course there interesting. are like specific gpus that only mine crypto for example ant miners and that sort of thing you cannot do i i don't want don't quote me on this but mm. <laughs> of mm. course we are on a recorded podcast <laughs> but uh i like, I, I don't think that ant miners can do AI, or at least I haven't seen yet, or I haven't dug deep enough. But my assumption is that they can't, as well as their GPUs, where they just cannot mine crypto. Uh, it's very specific to AI jobs. Um, and of course, those things will stay, but everything in, in between will just switch from one side to the other. Um, if crypto is, you know, however of a, how much of a believer someone is, if crypto is struggling for long enough, they will just switch to something else that gives them double the money or <laughs> or cheaper the money
0: uh, so okay. yeah this is such an interesting topic uh so you're saying that compute is there's a competition for compute between um ai and crypto some of that crypto can't be moved over into ai but if crypto continues to be in this down, downtrend, then they could just switch over to AI uh, may, brings up some questions about quantum computing and probably, you know, probably quantum computing is not on that time frame, not in the next year or two, at some point, maybe it'll, it'll, it'll change. Um, but uh, that is a, a wild, wild, interesting thing. Um, and I have no idea what the implications are that I've never heard of that specific uh, thing on it. What, what do you think the implications of that are? I mean, It's very,
1: it's very difficult to say, because at the same time, we're getting close to a Bitcoin halving, we are getting close to a US election, which where pro crypto people are coming in. So like there are these things that are happening at the same time or like collapsing waves and you, you really cannot tell which one is going to be the, the more, because if you look at the general market trend, if I'm a crypto believer, I would mine crypto. Uh, I mean, if I, if I were mining crypto, I would want to mine crypto right now because there is this other, like now it's devalued. Now I can get a lot of crypto for, uh, processing yeah. power. Yeah. And then later, later I can, there is a very logical assumption that this is, this thing will take off and, uh, I can make big bucks. Um, but also AI, like AI is, is not going to, go up like, you know, Bitcoin, like shoot up to 100K, but it's going to be the the thing that uh, governs a lot of our lives in the next 20, 30, 50 year horizon. So you have these two kind of trends laid out uh, on top of each other and they're battling it out right now. And also with talent, I mean, um, AI engineers are not, not interchange, like AI engineer, blockchain engineers as a JavaScript engineer or something, you can just go in and become a blockchain engineer fairly uh, easily on, on a low level and again this wow. is the low level guy so back to AI, yes that's the junior you can switch that out and in fact there are like smart contract templates right now and, and stuff like that that does that job easily we get hit by really crazy smart contract issues every day that basically no one else can solve around us and uh, and companies are <laughs> asking us to solve that so there is that that ChatGPT just won't be able to, um, to do for a while and then when there are new wallet um, infrastructures, like, like new uh, EIPs uh, coming out, new improvement proposals, uh, new structures of thinking about crypto. Um, then ChatGPT needs uh, uh, at least a couple of months to catch up. So there is that brokerage. And I, this is why we position Dakai as kind of this innovative uh, company that gets you, uh, like, whatever AI you have. You need that training amount. You need enough data for the AI to be able to train on. So that's probably a year of development experience on a new technology that they need to. For example, there is Apple's uh, new like AR headset now. There is not going to be AI that can program that for you for at least a year from now or since they put out the SDK. Um, and there is that year where companies still have to adopt like companies have to be in the first wave. there will be companies that want to be in that first wave of adoption of of, of, of um, augmented reality. and they will look at companies like Dakai uh, to build that first initial push for them. Um, but yeah, like it's that time frame also as training data becomes more available, as machines can think more deeply, um, this will shorten. But I think we hit a plateau with LLMs for a for a bit right now. Uh, and then probably it will continue. Like it will slowly rise. We will see some crazy uh, things emerging in terms of visual stuff. But in terms of how LLMs work, uh, the model itself, um, like in training data, now actually uh, companies are making models which use less training data to get to the same place yes. um yeah. as for example facebook llama and not necessarily pushing more training data on top of uh, their models uh so there is there is uh, there is now a trend towards efficiency versus just pushing bigger and bigger models out and um and and letting them run wide um so there are, there are so many trends that are kind of collapsing in the next yes. one to two years it's i think it's a great time to be
0: alive <laughs> uh it's gonna be so wild uh uh and so we got about five minutes left uh the thing you mentioned though about the compute the competition for compute um which is a great name for a podcast or a article or something like that uh the competition for compute is going to be maybe not so like because the ai companies what you just said about the models not going over efficiency cuz maybe the models already big enough like maybe we've already reached the point where A- open ai spends i think at 10 billion dollars i can't remember the actual number some huge amount of money they they the, to train that initial um llm and you know they're uh, got the 5 on the way but maybe that's that has already reached the point at which the compute or has already been done and then you know somebody like as you said the llama model can just be taken and open sourced and like 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 And then the compute goes away, right?
1: Yeah, but there are a couple of pieces in that. And and this is something where kind of most uh, podcasts or media that focuses on, on large language models kind of stop. Large language models alone, uh, they are pretty stupid. Uh, like Llama and, and all of this, if you try to use them in production or anything, they can piece together in, like sentences, but that's it. And the sentence will be like, it starts with your query and then it ends in uh, I don't know, <laughs> tulips and roses growing on on trees like that. It's very illogical what they put together. Uh, so you need an embedding layer, kind of that's the executive layer that uh, that pushes the large. Like that's what you're actually communicating with. And for example, that that embedding layer you can define to read, uh, you know, PDFs. You can define to do different things, and that embedding layer will just take like go from um, basically take your input, uh, get your stuff from a database from, from its data. And then it will just give you comprehensible, an answer in a comprehensible form uh, with, with Lama or, or something. So there's actually that small piece in the middle that does a lot of the job. And that was a really good presentation by uh, OpenAI CTO or, one of the VPs or or something similar, where um, it demonstrated that actually GPT two was kind of the the LLM and it was pretty bad um, and it's I mean it was almost unusable it was a, a gimmick, uh, and then with GPT three they started putting and and growing their embedding layer and that embedding layer became really really good um and that um, like that embedding layer is what now plugins are connecting to is what everything is connecting to so actually it's most it's like a a database essentially uh that sits on top of the language model and has an executive function of giving you the right data uh, from a lot of different sources that the model has scattered around um so that embedding layer and that embedding layer doesn't need a lot of training so that's actually a pretty cheap piece uh we have been training the how to speak English and how to put together normal sentences for humans kind of uh thing. And that yeah, that plateau. Like that's that's there. Uh, there are pretty good large language models now. Um and the embedding layer needs a lot of improvement. But the most have the heaviest AI guys, they don't want to work with LLMs. They want to work with, you know, brain machine interfaces or they want to work with other stuff. So actually the most hardcore AI people we know are not moving into LLMs. Uh so there is that gap of people who can write really good embedding layers are not actually writing embedding layers. Um, and I'm not sure if that will change. So I think that paradigm shift will be difficult to come about or, I mean, these things usually need an idea. So an idea might come, you're just increasing the chances of an idea. AI has been improving on ideas and not necessarily hard work uh, for for decades. And if you have an idea that's key tomorrow, then the whole industry will change. If you have an idea that's key in, you know, three years, then the industry will build on that. So it, it's a it's it works a bit differently than other things.
0: Okay, this is a important conversation, and I would love to continue it, uh, uh, but we have to wrap up soon. But it's so interesting. The secret to LLMs is the embedding layer and the executive yeah. function in that embedding layer, and that that's the key thing that. And then, and then you know, thinking into the future uh, is just like that execution layer. I have to, I have to continue it. Uh, so, um, adept. Uh, have you heard of Adept AI? Adept AI.
1: No, actually, I try to avoid most of these tools. Why? It's such an early. Yes. <laughs> I'm not a fan of llms So.
0: <laughs> oh, you're not a fan <laughs> of alarms. Okay, interesting. We, we might need to do another podcast. Uh, uh, because, because. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the adept AI, uh, is basically a UI path. Uh, UI path is like a dumb automation that goes through the website. You know what a, a, a UI path is. Yeah, yeah. Um, adept AI is like an LM take on that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. quick 30 seconds. Do you, based on what you just said, I think I already know what you're going to say, but, but do you think that this is a, a thing that will happen in the next six months?
1: Um, what will happen specifically? So, uh,
0: so an LLM with an executive function that can go into my computer and start to manipulate software for me in a way that where I don't actually need to interact with the software anymore.
1: In basic ways, this already exists. So they're like GitHub projects, open source projects that are out there that are doing this. But some, um, but they were super hyped. GPT maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, but Auto GPT, they it, uh, it, it was a hype. But so far, I haven't seen anybody yeah, yeah, yeah. do anything with
1: it. Actually, in a usable form, I think probably a year or two away. Okay. Um. Yeah, and even then, niche tasks they won't be able to do. So it, it's a bit of it's a bit of a struggle because it's not generative AI anymore. You like it's not generating something. Um. You you have to focus on a very concrete set of instructions and a very concrete, like a, a rule set, basically. And LLMs are generally not good at that. Again, they don't understand the limits of uh, like, the constraints necessarily. You might ask an LLM, give me an answer with, with this and this and this parameter. They might go wide and not even respect some of that. If that's not the like most likely, like they just look at what you're most likely to want to get out of this conversation. They're not actually respecting a lot of the rules that you are putting in that's the embedding layer that might uh, take those rules out and they they might just throw it back to the other like, hey, this is not this is this doesn't fit these Three rules that the user gave, um, but like embedding layer has to be partially um, manually coded or like put there so oh interesting it's very application specific yeah.
0: yeah yeah got it got it yeah the the problem space is so large that a general thing a general yeah. intelligence isn't going to be able to do it okay well this has been a, a very generative uh, um, uh episode for me i really appreciate you taking the time anything you're working on right now that you really want to let let our listeners know and understand uh, about what you're doing
1: um i think one thing that we are pushing forward right now is private large language models, even That's though we are not fans of that. Yeah. I, I recognize that there is a huge um, importance for companies that don't want to touch ChatGPT, especially for example, in the Middle East, no company wants to like give out their data to ChatGPT um, and on-prem large language model solutions is something that I guess Dakai will eventually uh, do as, a, as one of the business lines. Do you have a Twitter that uh, people can follow yet? at? it's uh m- my name and then Alam. uh it's plus log lm uh, with an s and z in the b- in the middle um i'll put it in the yeah, show yeah
0: that's that's why you' there awesome thank you Liza. awesome hey thanks for tuning into plain sight presented by invisible if you liked what you heard be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network if you're interested in learning more about how invisible helps teams cut costs and scale visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.